Good morning. I'm going to start this morning a little bit differently, um, and then I'm going to start by telling the story of a little-known Bible character named Shlomit. Show of hands, anybody remember Shlomit? I was like, I don't remember this person. Her story is found in the book of Leviticus, and she's actually the only woman given a name in that book. And her story is it's just, just a few sentences. And Shlomit comes to our attention after her son gets into a fight. So her son, who's never given a name in the text, is described as having an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father. And that simple bit of information invites a whole world of questions. Right, so the Israelites, which his mother is, they had been slaves in Egypt. And they had recently escaped their captivity and they were wandering around in the desert. And so this young man has Shlomit as a mother and an Egyptian father who's never named or spoken of again in the text. And this leads us to wonder, had Shlomit been raped by an Egyptian man while they were still in Egypt? Or had she been partnered with? Had she been married to an Egyptian? And if so, it would be presumably an Egyptian man of low enough status to be either married to or cohabiting with a foreign slave. Is it even possible this Egyptian man escaped with the Israelite slaves and was with them in the desert? We just don't know. But I think the lack of this Egyptian father's name, while Shlomit's name is given, it probably indicates a situation that's more akin to her having been raped or of having had a love affair that would have left her disgraced in her community. Right? She would have been deemed either a traitor or a whore. Which makes some sense of some of this extra-biblical commentary, which often refers to Shlomit as an adulteress, right? as a woman who's blamed for whatever scandalous mess that she has found herself in. Because either way that she was impregnated, consensually or non, is problematic for her. And so Shlomit's son gets into a fight with another young man. And during that fight, we're told that he blasphemes the name of God with a curse. And when we speak the name of God here, we're talking about the word name is capitalized in the text because the name of God was considered so holy and so unmentionable that it was never said aloud except by the high priest and perhaps in certain rituals. So instead of saying the name of God when people would read through a scroll, instead of saying the word Yahweh, when read aloud, the word would be substituted. They would use the word Adonai or the Holy One, or sometimes Hashem, which just means the name. Well, Shlomit's son not only says the name, Yahweh, but also curses it. And so the people who heard him were so appalled that they took that young man and they brought him into custody, eventually bringing him to Moses, their leader, for judgment. Right? This is the Ten Commandments, Moses, right? And when Moses rendered a verdict, it was the death penalty. And Moses says this, he says, take the blasphemer outside the camp and all who heard him are to lay their hands on his head and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, anybody who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them. Like this is dark stuff. Whether foreigner or native born, when they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. And what we see here is Shlomit's son is actually the first incarcerated man that we know of in ancient Israel. And his sentence here becomes legal precedent. 
And this is all we ever know about Shlomit or her son. Now, I want to offer two different takes on this story from two different perspectives, and then I want to talk about them in the context of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So the first take comes from a womanist perspective. So womanism is a social theory that's based on the everyday experiences of women of color. So we're going to be looking at this story through the eyes of a woman of color. Now it was Caroline turned me on to the work of Reverend Dr. Wilma Gaffney, and she's a black womanist scholar of the Hebrew Bible at Bright Seminary. And she talks about how Shlomit is the mother of a son caught up in a criminal justice system. And she says, you know, Shlomit's son is probably indeed guilty of the crime of which he's accused, but he's still Shlomit's son. It's her child. We don't even know how old he was. And Gaffney wonders whether his crime carries more social weight because of his suspect origin story. Right? Whether people punished him more for the sins of his mother. Whether people were thinking, well, that serves a right, right. This sexually immoral woman, of course, has a kid who gets into a fight and who blasphemes God. Right? Anyone here who has carried judgment because of the actions of a family member can relate to Shlomit in this way. So I'm going to read what Dr. Gaffney writes about the story because I think she just says it a lot better than I could. So she says, the overrepresentation of black and brown women and men in the criminal justice system of the United States rests on the incarceration of the innocent and the guilty alike. She says, Shlomit is known in the canon as that woman whose son did that thing. And she's guilty by association as a result of the press that her son's story has generated, right? Digging into her own past, which is mentioned in this brief little passage about her, right? The text talks about her. It doesn't invite or engage her in the conversation. The text doesn't give Shlomit a voice with which to express her feelings for her son, whether she welcomed his birth or not, whether she loved him fiercely, regardless of his origins, whether she struggled to provide for him or raise him, whether her family supported her and welcomed him, whether she was surprised at his fighting or used to it, whether she feared the impending judgment on his crime or whether she welcomed it, whether she loved him more than God, loving him enough to forgive the unforgivable sin. And for each possibility, there are women with children in the criminal justice system for whom those feelings in some or in part are lived reality. So Shlomit is the most visible woman in Leviticus, a woman with a son conceived and born in some kind of scandal who was convicted and executed for blasphemy. And then Dr. Gaffney asks, does this remind us of anyone else in the Bible? A woman with a son conceived and born in some kind of scandal whose son was convicted and executed for blasphemy. Right? Perhaps Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, let's hold that thought while we consider a second angle here on Shlomit. And this one comes from the Jewish, uh, the Jewish Midrash. So Midrash is just Jewish commentary on the Bible. And it can be, it, it like ranges from all sorts of things. It can be in favor of the text, plain reading or not. It can be critical of what's recorded or not. And Midrash 
which allows the rabbis to let their imaginations just roam freely to consider what might have been going on in the story and what we could learn from it, right? So oftentimes the rabbis, they would come up with sort of extra stories to help them get at the various angles or to like explore different motivations for the characters. And so one particular midrash that I read was highly critical of Moses in this story saying that that punishment of death that he doled out to Shlomit's son was wrong. And it had more to do with the son being an outsider. And so the rabbis imagined a scenario where Shlomit's son, that he wanted to pitch a tent among his mom's people. So his mom was from the tribe of Dan. And they're like, what if he grew up and he just wanted to settle down among his mother's people? But what if the tribe didn't want anything to do with him because he was a bastard, right? The word that they use is mamzer. Remember that word, he was a mamzer. And so the rabbis speculate that the young man maybe experienced a lot of isolation within society and that the, uh, the unwillingness of his tribe to accept him perhaps drove him to this extreme act of blasphemy which resulted in his death. Right? They were feeling empathy and compassion for him and they're like, if that's the case, his death is unjust. And I found this particular midrash interesting because Jesus would also likely have been considered a mamzer. Now, mamzer doesn't exactly mean bastard. It has that connotation, but it also has wider connotation regarding the questionable or forbidden sexual relationships. And Jesus had questionable paternity. And it's been suggested that Jesus wasn't married off as a young man, perhaps because of his status as a mamzer. Maybe that made him a less desirable husband. Right, so with those two takes in mind, right, this womanist take and this Jewish midrash, let's turn to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and see if this can help us dig into her story a little bit. Because she found herself in a situation similar to Shlomit. She became pregnant through suspect circumstances. Right? She was either impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and we could understand why some people might be suspicious of her claim, or perhaps she was raped. Right? She was a young woman in a territory that was occupied by Roman forces, and I would say that those are the two most likely scenarios. And I think that we can read the gospel here either literally, you know, that the Spirit impregnated her, or through a literary lens, or maybe both. Right, so literally, just taking the text as it is, which I think is a fair thing to do in a part of scripture that's written as history, right? It's written as historical account. Mary became pregnant through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And Ken talked at length about this part last Sunday. And he talked about how the word that was used, like it says that God overshadowed Mary. The word there is Shekinah. Shekinah, the presence of God. And the Shekinah presence is a feminine presence in the Hebrew. Okay, so in other words, like the divine feminine aspect of God came to Mary and brought about her impregnation, right? The virgin birth. And I kind of like the mysterious element of this because I believe that miracles happen. I believe in miracles. And I think that the invitation into the mystery of it is a helpful way for us to ponder those aspects of God that are mystical and that are an enigma. That aspect of God that is bigger than and beyond our understanding. And then to think about those aspects, those big aspects of God intertwined with this very personal, intimate, knowable God. 
this God who made himself vulnerable as a human baby, like coming down the human birth canal out of the human body, kind of intimate and vulnerable baby, juxtaposed with this God as this enormous unexplainable mystery, right? It's a paradox that I think invites us to ask more questions about the nature of God. But we can also think about this immaculate conception, right? The Virgin Mary becoming pregnant through a literary lens, right? So if you're Mary, and let's say you're 14, 15-year-old girl, and let's say you were perhaps raped and you became pregnant, and you're at risk of being dumped by your betrothed, Joseph, and you're at risk of living a life of a disgraced woman, If you're the author of this account, right, if you're Luke, the gospel writer, how do you convey this girl's innocence in her situation when much of the culture around her would assume her guilt? Well, you would speak of her as a virgin, and you would record the angelic visitations that occurred to both Mary and to Joseph, where Gabriel or the, other, the unnamed angel of Joseph speaks to each of them, just convincing their hearts that this pregnancy is of God and that it will be used by the Almighty for great things and that Mary is not to be blamed for her condition, but she's to be honored. Right? So I think you can believe in the virgin birth as a miraculous event per church tradition, and I think you can also believe in the virgin birth in a way that says, I'm going to submit to the story that Luke is telling me. That Mary is an innocent, that she's not an immoral person, and that her child, in the way that God is telling her that she is not guilty, her child is actually the hope of nations, that God is overturning those systems of injustice. And the angel that came to Mary told her twice that she was highly favored by God. But in her humble state, this beaten down state, beaten down by the systems of the world and what she had absorbed about her worth as a human being, she was confused and said she wondered how she could possibly be the person that this angel was talking to. The angel said, what? Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You're going to conceive and you're going to give birth to a son and you're to call him Jesus and he will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, David, the great king of Israel. And he's going to reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will know no end. And we're told then that Mary was troubled. She said, how in the world can this be? How can it be that a sexually disgraced woman could be declared the mother of a king? Right? And the answer was that God didn't see her as disgraced but as royalty. And it made me wonder just how many of us have felt like we weren't good enough to be accepted by God. Or how many of us have been made to feel that way by others, even if God didn't make us feel that way. And how many of us have felt like we've needed to hide a part of ourselves from others in order to belong in our communities. I know I personally felt like I had to hide a part of myself for a few years. And it was a part of myself that others would have labeled a sexual disgrace. So I can relate to Mary. And I can relate to her feeling like nothing good was going to come of this situation. And I can relate to hearing that sort of whisper of a promise that God was at work in the world. 
I mean, I wasn't a sexual disgrace, but I was worthy of God's love and acceptance and worthy of communal acceptance. Right? This is the kind of good news that Mary is hearing. This angelic visit to Mary is good news for everyone who has ever felt disgraced. Right? It's saying God loves you. God can and will use you for her purposes. So Mary here, existing as this young Jewish woman in the Roman Empire without any power or prestige, carrying a mamzer child, God declares her blessed. And then unlike Shalomit, she becomes more than just that woman whose bastard son did that thing. Right? She becomes more than, well, of course he was killed on a Roman cross. His mother was a whore. Right? That's not Mary's story. She's not assumed guilty in the gospel, and she's given a name, not as an afterthought, but as a more rounded part of who she is, right? Unlike Shlomit, we're allowed to see her reactions to the news of her pregnancy, and we know where she went. She went to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, and she has a voice, and she has a song of joy and of triumph that she sings out because she's vindicated by both God and she's vindicated by some of the people around her, including her soon-to-be husband, Joseph, whose heart has also been convinced of her worthiness. You know, Joseph becomes a really important ally in this story. And I think we don't always think of him in such terms. But really, without Joseph backing her up, you know, standing up for her, marrying her, raising Jesus as his own, and treating Mary with honor, Mary's story would not be the same. You know, Joseph had more social standing as a man, and he had more of a presumption of innocence especially sexually. And that man used his standing and his privilege as a person in good standing in the community to help Mary's situation. Just as I would say, those of you here who identify as straight, you lend your privilege to help queer people worship God with a sense of honor and of acceptance. And in this way, I also think the author of the gospel, Luke, is also standing with Mary and lending his privilege Right? I think this story, it's not to be read like, oh, okay, so in the Christian New Testament, they give honor to disgraced women, while in the Jewish Old Testament, they erase their stories. Because that's just not true. Right? There are more women in the Hebrew Scriptures than in the entire New Testament. And early on, we see with Hagar and others, we see the oppressed given a voice. I think what we have here is Luke, a Jewish man, joining in with the long stream of Jewish thinking that sexually disgraced women are not to be thought of as guilty and worthless. Right? This we remember the rabbis and the midrash that criticized Moses for condemning Shlomit's son. Right? They were condemning and criticizing Moses because they could imagine Shlomit's son's difficulty fitting in as a mamzer. And they could see how Shlomit's story was told. That she was only given a name as a woman in Leviticus not to honor her story, but to dishonor her and to use her sordid tale of having had a baby with an Egyptian to help justify the death of her son. And I think Luke here is joining in with that cry of critique and saying, this is not justice. And Luke lets us, the readers and the hearers, know that God's heart here lies in the stream that vindicates the oppressed. And the proof is in the blessing that God bestows on Mary. In the blessing, in the immaculate conception, in this declaration of innocence and worthiness by the angel, and then later on by the resurrection of her son 
after he's falsely accused of blasphemy and put to death. I think Luke is trying to tell us that God is on the side of the powerless. So for everyone whose story has made them feel disgraced or like they can't be worthy in the eyes of God, this is good news, right? This is great news. And so now Mary, having really received this news and understood it, she holds it and she has to wait. She's holding it and she has to wait for her upcoming marriage, for her child to be born, for her community to embrace the reality of this and to see what her son is going to turn out to be. And so she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth after she becomes pregnant. Right? I think Mary needed to be surrounded by people who were not gossiping about her disgrace. Right? She needed to go and to be around loved ones who believed her, who believed her story. And her cousin Elizabeth was probably older than Mary, um, maybe older than Mary's own mother. And so I think Elizabeth and Zechariah, they could surround Mary with this sort of paternal love and support. You know, they had their own miraculous baby on the way. And I think Elizabeth and Mary could confide in one another and they could encourage each other. And as I was going over that this morning, it made me think of um, Kinsman kind of putting together this like parental allies group. I don't know what you're calling yourselves yet, but like mama bears and papa bears, parents that have gay kids that want to just like surround some of our queer congregants with love, maybe some of us who haven't felt fully accepted in our own families. And I thought this is exactly what is happening here. Right? How we wait for that kind of justice with our own family and friends, which may or may not come in our lifetime. But one of the strategies for waiting for that is to surround yourself with people who love you and who support you and who can stand into that space. Right? The way you wait is surrounded by this kind of love. And so as Mary is walking up to Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth cries out a blessing, and in response, Mary just bursts out in song. She's so joyful. She says, my, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in my Savior. He's been mindful of the humble state of his servant, and from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Right, so we see Mary's identity transformed from this worthless, humble, like, who me? How could you be talking to me? To understanding that she is loved so much by God that God is going to do great things for her, not just her son. And that God was at work in her, quietly subverting the power systems of the world and weaving her, just as God is weaving us, into that cadre of witnesses who have walked the world, testifying to this God who is love, to this God who loves us, and who just values humans and will use our lives to testify to something greater than us, right? And we look at that, we say, that is so like God. Right? This is something about God's character here. To use someone with very little power to confront and to confound powerful systems. And then we also see the transformation of Mary's hope for her people. Right? She comes from a place where people who push against power are killed. And their lives and their homes are destroyed. But now she has hope that God is working in all of this ugliness to turn all of that upside down. Right? She says, he's brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. Oh, that we could embrace that of Mary's. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Right? So Mary has found her voice. 
And it's like she knows the political situation. Like there were hundreds of people who rebelled against the Roman Empire and probably her parents' generation and were all crucified. Hundreds up in the Galilee. She understands full well the situation she's in. She knows the despair and the complexities and that it can take a long time for things to change. And she knows her own situation. She knows that people may not believe her story. And yet we see her able to imagine a long-term future in the midst of this despair, right? Hope for something more, even while the darkness is still there. And this is the reality that we recognize in Advent, right? That hope and peace and joy and love, they run alongside the grief and the hardship and the disbelief, right? It doesn't dissipate it. It doesn't make grief and hardship go away, but they run alongside one another. And I think we all have hard things in our lives, right? Doctors' tests that we're waiting on and medical issues, family troubles, relationship bumps, job stress. I mean, sickness and death and injustice is all around us. And yet we see in Mary's story the joy that she finds in surrounding herself with loved ones in a prophetic hope for something better. And her joy comes from this promise, right, that she has from God, that God is at work in the world through her. And that same promise then is bequeathed to us through her son, Jesus. And that as we're waiting in all of the stuff in our lives, as we're waiting for the promises of God to be completely fulfilled, the way we wait is to surround ourselves with people of love and people of comfort and people of joy who uplift us and encourage us. And that helps us to wait in hopeful anticipation, in a worshipful posture before God. So I'm going to close here. We have a meditation that we usually do, like a two minutes of either silence or guided meditation. And this will be a guided meditation, but I'm, I'm going to kind of tread lightly, and we're going to just see what the Holy Spirit, um, just make ourselves open to maybe hearing from the Spirit of God this morning. So just make yourself comfortable. Maybe take a couple of deep breaths. And let's just start for maybe 30 seconds by just imagining a space that for you feels safe and joyful and maybe even worshipful. And pay attention to the details around you. Like let your imagination really roam here. Like what does it smell like and look like? And where are you in this space? Let's just take some time to do that. Now imagine that Jesus approaches you, or if that's, um, you can also use, let's say, the spirit of love, the spirit of the God who is love, and if it's helpful, the feminine spirit of God. Just whichever one feels safest to you, just imagine 
that that spirit or Jesus comes toward you. And just pay attention to what that, that feels like and looks like to you. And in that space, you can just extend your hands in a posture of openness. Let's see if we can experience a blessing from this God who is. You could hear that. Listen to Jesus say, you are loved fully and completely. You are wanted in my presence. You've been called disgraced, but I call you blessed. can use you in this world. Now I want to spend about 30 seconds to a minute and let's just stay in this position and just be open to the Spirit saying anything else to us in this space. Jesus, we ask that you remove any stigma or shame from us and that we will experience your love and your acceptance both in your presence as well as in the community of the people who are surrounding us. And may the knowledge of that seep really deep into us like Mary, that we can receive that word, the joy that erupts from us when we really understand what that means. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.